Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. This is the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more acceptance, ease, joy and purpose. Thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen, learn and feel inspired. And if you do love the podcast, can you do me a favour and hit subscribe? It really does help. Welcome to this episode. I am so excited for this one. It is with Emma Reed Terrell, who is a psychotherapist and author of Please Yourself, How to Stop People Pleasing and Transform the Way You Live. Sounds good, doesn't it? I am a people pleaser in recovery, which you may have heard me talk about before, because it's such a huge part of my recovery and my life. And it is still very much a work in progress for me. My knee-jerk reaction is still to put others' feelings over my own. I still find it so hard to disappoint, upset, or even make another person angry. I still find that almost intolerable, and I work on it almost daily. So in this incredible conversation, Emma breaks down when you know you're a people pleaser, why we become people pleasers, which is just absolutely fascinating, and how it shows up in motherhood. And most importantly, how to begin to change that pattern so we can become more and more ourselves, more alive, joyful, and all the good stuff that people pleasing blocks us from. And you're going to want to stay right to the end to hear her gift, which is just beautiful. I hope you love it. Please do share it with any mothers that you think might identify with people pleasing. Here it is. Um, I'm so excited to chat to you <laughs> because I am a recovering people pleaser. And mm. I think you've written the manual about people pleasing. <laughs> the and, manifesto. Exactly. And I think being a mother and a people pleaser is like the hardest thing ever to do. So I'm so excited for everyone to listen to everything that you've got to say about people pleasing and to help us find more freedom and energy because God, it's tiring being a people pleaser. So welcome. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm also really excited because I think it's both exhausting being a people pleaser and a mum and put that together then. (laughs) It's kind of exhaustion squared. Exactly. That's the maths we're starting with. (laughs) So how does someone know if they're a people pleaser? Because... It's kind of wired in us, isn't it, to want to help others. That's why as a species we've done so well, right? Because we're working. But how do we know when it's something that's getting outsized or might be a problem? That's such a great question to start with because you're right. There's fundamentally nothing wrong with wanting to be helpful and kind and support other people. And I think that's great. It's when it becomes at a cost to you at a cost to your own needs. So you spend more time occupying the feelings and needs of other people than you do occupying your own feelings and needs. And then we start to notice we're losing our identity. We don't quite know what we want anymore. So many people come to me and say they feel a bit lost. That's the point at which I start looking for that kind of, has this become people pleasing rather than a kind of a relationship of mutual respect and support? Yeah, it makes total sense, doesn't it? Because if you give to others and you forget to give as much to yourself of course you start to feel lost makes total sense because you're swimming in in the needs of others not your own that's it yeah I love that metaphor just sloshing around in the (laughs) toxic goo of other people (laughs) so that feeling of feeling lost 
that mm-hmm. feeling of not knowing your own needs, but knowing other people's around you, what else yeah. would be some of those, I guess, red flags you would call them that someone yeah. might be stuck in that disease to please, as I call it? Yeah, yeah, no, it, I mean, and it is, there's a kind of pathology to it. I think one of the things that we can look out for is the inability to tolerate someone else being displeased with you. So it's a kind of inability to hear your own voice and your own judgment, as well as the judgments and opinions of other people. So we start doing things because we can't actually survive without that sense of approval or because we've become so conditioned to be it. I think the problem with people pleasing is it starts so young that we typically develop a lot of praise for it. We become really good at it. We're a nice, safe pair of hands, or we're really helpful, or we're really reliable. And we find ourselves actually in situations, jobs, relationships, family systems, where that's who we are and what we do. And we start to realize that actually we have to stay in our own lane. Otherwise, we risk this disapproval from other people. So I think sometimes it's that bit where you're coming up against yourself. It's like I describe it to clients as feeling like you're at odds with yourself. A part of you wants one thing, a part of you wants another. And that anxiety often comes in at that point. It's so linked to worth, I think, as well. Because when I first really identified this, this people-pleasing tendency, I would practice saying no or what I wanted. And this voice, this internal voice was really loud, which was, who do you think you are? Yeah. Upset that other person because of what you want. I had my worth like all upside down and inside out. That's absolutely it. You've hit the nail on the head. It's that bit where we think that having an impact on someone else is a bad thing. Somehow we've been taught that to have an impact on someone else is bad. And so often I talk to recovering people pleasers about this idea of just because someone's disappointed about a choice you've made, it doesn't mean it was the wrong choice. You're not responsible for their response. It's so interesting. And you hear parents say that. That was that real 80s parenting, wasn't it? Yeah. I'm cross. I'm disappointed. Disappointed. (laughs) So it's no wonder wonder we've got a generation of mothers now who really struggle with, as you say, holding disappointing others in order to approve of ourselves. Yeah, including our kids, you know, disappointing our kids. There's a whole other realm of disappointment that we have to face. I definitely want to get into that because I think people pleasing and trying to parent and pleasing our children and not being able to hold boundaries is a huge thing that's come up for me in motherhood. But I just wanted to start by digging first a bit more into people pleasing. You've mentioned a few times childhood gets set up in childhood. Tell us how people pleasing gets set up in childhood. And then part B to that question would be, Mm -hmm. how do we raise our children differently so that they're not people pleasers, so they don't need to come and read your book? Let's start with the first one. So how does a people pleaser get created? It happens in lots of different ways. So sometimes we might find that we have a parent who can't handle our feelings. So we might have a parent who, if you can picture this, I certainly can, who can look worried or concerned if we're upset. And so as a child, of course, the last thing we want to do is rock the boat around a caregiver. So we might start to learn that actually our feelings upset other people. So we start to find ways to kind of moderate them, modify them, bury them, disown them ditch them all together. And I think one of those impacts is of having a parent who just wants us to be happy. So we try very hard to please them by not having these difficult feelings. We might have a caregiver who's doing all the feelings already. Maybe there was chaos growing up and actually they were occupying the feelings. And as a child, in the same vein, we don't want to upset our caregivers. We rely on them for our survival. So if we can help them stay okay, we will. 
And that might mean we kind of help them maintain a status quo that's all right. Or maybe one of our older siblings has already occupied the role of boat rocker. So actually for us to find our slot in life, we can develop something else and be the good kid. Sometimes there's depression around. Sometimes we get messages about you can feel some feelings, but not others. So if we stereotype at this point, we've got lots of little girls growing up into mums these days who were taught not to be angry, but perhaps were allowed to be sad or scared. And vice versa, we can find little boys growing up being told not to be sad, not to show tears, not to be weak. So some feelings might have been allowed and not others. And we basically end up with a set of conditions. And these are who we are to be and how we are to behave, what feelings we're to feel, which ones we're not, what we're to do and acting on them. Until we end up with this lane that we have to stay in. And the people pleaser lives in that lane, trying very hard not to put a foot wrong or upset anyone else, trying to be all the things that brought them closer to their original caregiver and none of the things that drove a wedge between them. So maybe that actually leads us into question part B, you know, which is this piece about how to actually model, not martyr as a parent. By that, I mean how to show our children what it looks like to feel. And that includes what it looks like to feel when we're frustrated with them or something they've said or done upsets us or hurts our feelings so that we're not there trying to protect them from feelings themselves. We actually get to show them what life is like and how to feel so that we give them permission to feel their feelings too. So many people pleasers will tell me about, my mum was such a people pleaser as well. You know, I would see her going around to the neighbours and taking shepherd's pies and walking their dogs and picking their kids up. So what else was I to do? You know, I learned how to do it. And my view of parenting is about this model. Don't take it all on and be superwoman because actually all you're doing is setting up the next generation to follow suit. Similarly, I think it's really important that as parents, we have spaces where we can take our feelings that help us regulate, you know, because so much of this is about being feeling for humans, but also recognizing actually that we need the right spaces to take those feelings. There's so much in all of that, isn't there? And I think I think it's fascinating what you were sharing there about not being these sort of cardboard cutout, yeah. you know, models and not having feeling, but also not pendulum in the other way and and flooding the house with our feelings. Dumping. Exactly. And like everything, you know, there's the two extremes that you just described. Yeah. And then there's that sort of middle ground, isn't it? Where I'm still learning this, where I'm able to show my feelings around my children, but maybe I've done enough processing or I'm grounded enough outside of that relationship that it doesn't feel unsafe to them that I'm sort of, yeah. it's a fine line, isn't it? Yeah, it is a fine line. And I think one of the things that I kind of take great pains to do with my kids and, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. So who knows whether it'll be the right thing or not. And as we know, we know we screw them up in one way or another. But what I try to do is talk about my feelings when it's not about them. So if, for instance, we're at the dinner table and I've had a rubbish day at work, I might talk about my rubbish day at work. Or if someone cut me up on the motorway or took my parking place or moaned at me when I was late, that I would talk about those feelings that I might have so that my kids hear me talk about my feelings, but not necessarily in a direct context that's about them, because they might not yet be able to tolerate the fact that I'm having those feelings in response to our relationship. We will talk about that. My son's 11 now. We're talking about that quite a lot because he's very much preteen right now. But actually, I think it's really important just to hear dialogue about feelings. That's what I didn't have because I think partly my parents didn't have the language. And also, it just wasn't like that in the 80s, was it? It just wasn't. No. no and I think now 
I mean, I've been practicing for 15 years. 15 years ago, it wasn't like that. And so much has changed over the last 15 years that I've been in practice, just noticing that, well, therapy is no longer a taboo subject, but equally feelings are much more commonplace in conversations. And I think to have that kind of little and often conversation about how you feel, what makes you happy, what makes you sad, what makes you angry, so that we don't have this idea that feelings are off limits and we need to think our way through or act our way out. I wanted to ask you about just sticking on this parenting theme for a moment around Mm. pleasing our parents and getting into, as you say, that sort of adaptation. I can't remember the word. I use the word adaptation. I can't remember the word Uh you use. Around, I will get rid of what I authentically think and feel in order to please you. That's one side of it. Versus we sort of need our children to comply sometimes. Because sometimes I feel like, gosh, am I squashing, you know, I've got quite a fiery little toddler and actually a very compliant six-year-old. So with my six-year-old, I'm trying to get her to push a bit more, push those boundaries a bit more. And with my two-year-old, I'm trying to, and it's complex because I'm always thinking, particularly with the conversations I have on the podcast, like, gosh, how do I get that line right between, yes, I want to hear what you think about that. Tell me, have the tantrum, you know, that you don't want to do that, but also we're doing it. And it's so difficult, isn't it? I think it's brilliant that you're kind of talking about your toddler in that way. I think about my toddler. She's eight now. When she was two, I can remember getting really fixated into this idea that she was she had a yogurt and I gave her a spoon and, and she wouldn't use the spoon to eat the yogurt. And I kind of got locked into this idea that this is just what we need to do. We just need to eat our yogurt right now. And my best friend, who's her godmother, she was there at the time. And she said she wants a fork. She just wants to eat with a fork. I was like, yeah, but you can't eat with a fork. It's a yogurt. You have to eat a yogurt with a spoon. She's like, just give her a fork. <laughs> I remember this moment when my best friend then handed her a fork and she was so delighted that she'd been heard and that she was able to kind of like effectively not eat, but, you know, have an experience of eating a yogurt with a fork. But in that moment, I got that realization of this is what it's about. It's about not expecting compliance where it doesn't matter. That there are so many places where it would be more convenient for us as parents, or it'd make our life easier, or it'd be quicker or more efficient if they would comply. And actually, what we want more than that is for these little people to grow up into being independent, autonomous citizens who have voices and can protect themselves and can have intimate, authentic relationships. So for me, it comes down to discipline. And I use that word discipline in a way that I don't think we often hear in society. So discipline, at least in our kind of common lexicon, tends to mean doing things maybe that we don't want to do, but that are the right thing to do. For me, it's not. It's the difference between what do I want now and what do I want most? That might be actually what I want now is for my daughter to eat her yogurt because I'm tired and we've been doing lunch for an hour and I've got something else I want to do. But what I want most it's for her to develop her little identity and her little personality and reach out and grow. So for me, the discipline in that moment was about staying up on my toes and staying flexible around what actually needs compliance and what's just about difference and divergence. That's so powerful. And also, isn't that powerful when we're recovering from people pleasing? Because when I think about that, what do I want now? What do I want most? When I set a boundary or I say no, or someone is angry with me, what I want now is to make that go away, that crawl out of my skin discomfort, because I'm still teaching my nervous system that it's safe. My nervous system just goes offline. It's mad what happens to me still. What I want is to go, I didn't mean it. Take it back. 
anything. But what I want most is to grow into my more and more story. So it's so powerful. I've never heard it described yeah. like that. It's so brilliant, that sort of short-term fix versus the long-term reprogramming or what the values and the things we're really trying to instill are. Yeah, because this is really that bottom line about people-pleasing. What we want now as a people-pleaser is conditional acceptance. I want to have met your conditions and I want you to be okay with me. That's what I want now because that feels safe and peaceful. What I want most is unconditional acceptance. I want this to not be about what I do, what I think, what I say. In this moment, I want my very existence and my being and the meanness of me to be that which you accept condition free and i think in a way you know that's what we see cycle at least twice through children's development that toddler stage and again through adolescence is that experience of do you accept me unconditionally or is this a whole textbook that i have to tick off here for you to come and bring me that love on a daily basis so if we can recognize actually what our kids are doing sometimes is testing is this unconditional then it can help free us up from being locked in with a battle that, to be honest, is probably our own battle from generations ago. You know, like, hang on a minute, where's my voice? What about me? That's, that's so where, valid. That's where the rubber really hits the road for me is like when Jesse, my six year old, has really big feelings, and my God, it triggers me. And yeah. my absolute practice has been can I stay with her? in those feelings so that she knows. And sometimes I don't even say the words, you know, you're loved, whether you're tantruming, whether you're screaming at me, whether you're, I love you, I'm here for you. I sometimes can't even say that. I just try and stay. Yes. I so get, but my nervous system has to be so regulated to do that. And I so get why people go, go to your room, naughty step, because it's so flooding for me. I totally get. But then of course, children get the message my feelings aren't safe. And when I have these big feelings, I have to go to the room on my own and then I'm flooded with them. And then their nervous system starts to mirror my state of my nervous system. Yeah. And the good news in all of that is that we're not supposed to get it right. We're not supposed to each and every time find that line, find the balance, and you know, do the right thing if even there is such a thing. But what we do have that opportunity for is rupture and repair. You know, we have that opportunity to, in that moment, say, I can't cope with this. You're going to have to be in a different space from me and then find their way back and say, ah, do you know what? Mummy made a mistake there because what happened for me then was that I had this really big feeling and I didn't know what to do with it. Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever feel like that? Oh, you do. Okay, why don't we talk about it? Because this is that moment actually where we get to, in the repair, do the very work we were trying to do in the first place, which is share that we all have these feelings, that we're all human. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Just learning alongside each other. Yeah, and those moments, I can remember being in a park where I was living at the time and I had a toddler and I had a puppy and we were by a river and in that moment, it all just kind of chaos ensued and the puppy ran one way and the toddler ran the other way and I stood in the park and I just bawled and I just shouted, when will one of you just obey me? And this was that moment of kind of, I can't cope. And thank goodness I had that moment because actually, do you know what? I wasn't coping. I was absolutely not coping. And what I needed was some support. But until I really got that message of my feeling, which I could have shamed myself for, I could have kept that to myself and thought, oh, that was terrible. Who heard me shouting in the park? But actually, that was my signal. That's why feelings are so helpful to us. They're traffic lights. They just tell us, ah, that was too much. Order a takeaway tonight. Exactly. 
what are some of the big things that parenting and mothering specifically has taught you about people pleasing and what have you seen in your clients because as we shared at the start people pleasing Mm. exhausting mothering exhausting yeah and I think you you know quite funny you said it's exhaustion (laughs) squared what are some of the things that can really show us we talked about a few and how can mothers with little time little resource energy start Mm. to begin to transform this I think there's actually more potential and opportunity and excitement in this than there is you know anything that feels negative or scary because I have noticed through parenting my children how the very theories that I was learning about when I was studying psychotherapy the very theories of child development I was learning about were now happening live in front of me and one of the big ones that Pam Levine talks about is how we recycle stages of our own human development when we parent children so what we notice is that if there was something that maybe we didn't quite complete maybe there was an area of unfinished business for us when we were a child when our own child goes through that stage we will really know about it and that could be you know in that example that you were giving with jesse when our child starts to defy us if we didn't fully feel the permission to defy and be safe we are going to know about that and what that means is we have an opportunity to go through that stage with our kid And not only do we do it differently for them, so we give them the space and the freedom and the permission to defy, but we actively go back and give ourselves that permission as well. And that might mean that we find ourselves actually taking the day off and sitting on the sofa and watching cartoons and scrolling on our phone and eating chocolate buttons, she says, from personal experience. Because actually, maybe that was what we were missing too from a stage of our own development. We had tried so hard to be perfect and compliant that we'd missed out on that. So if you notice something really jars with you, get curious about whether or not you had permission to willingly, voluntarily go through that stage of child development yourself. You don't have to be in the theory of it, but you might just notice that your kid comes home from school and says that they didn't want to play with someone, so they didn't. Maybe that's going to really wrangle your nerves because you think, well, hang on a minute, what about social rejection? Ah, have they actually just come from a more enlightened position maybe we can take a leaf out of our own kids books at that point and think do you know what there's someone that I still meet up with for dog walks once a week do I want to do that anymore so get curious that's one thing we can do the other thing we can do is lean into the feelings side of things and by that I mean one of the biggest pitfalls that I see around parenting if we are people pleasers ourselves is that we'll find it really hard to tolerate disappointment We find it really hard to tolerate sadness. And one of the impacts of that is that when our children naturally go through stages of life, that they weren't invited to a birthday party, they didn't get picked for the team, they didn't do very well in their reading challenge, they spilt something on their favorite sweatshirt, they fell over and hurt themselves. All of these very natural experiences that our children are going to go through. We have this, again, opportunity to do something different, to not say, don't worry, it's only a sweatshirt, to not say, well, I'm sure she didn't mean it, to not say, up you get, there's no blood, to say something else, which says, ouch, that sounds painful. What was that like for you? Maybe to say something like, I remember that. That was really tough. Because I don't know about you, but I wouldn't go back there. You know, all of these thoughts about these are the best days of your life. For me, 
No, thanks. I'll stick with being an autonomous adult. Thanks very much. So there is something really, really rewarding about going back and giving kids different experiences when it comes to here's how your feelings are welcome and here's how they're going to inform you and keep you safe, actually. I'm not going to protect you from disappointment because if I teach you how to survive it, you'll be way safer. It's so powerful and so much of what you said resonates. You just made me think of something that happened the other day and it was absolutely one of those just brilliant mirror trigger moments where we had sports day and I was always last at sports day and I remember viscerally somatically the pain of that there's this photograph of me trying to throw this ball and there's all these boys stood around just laughing at me and Jessie yeah. goes to sports day yeah so painful still is Jessie goes to sports day and of course she's last in the race and I said to my husband I was really like oh I felt bad for her I felt that shame coming up and I, I said to my husband well we're gonna have to get her in some practice like next year so that she's not last I mean come on and he looked at me and he was like so why is it a problem someone's got to be last and she's amazing at reading she's like top in her year <laughs> top in the next year at reading I thought oh my god this is you know and I'm deep into this work yes. and I think about it all the time and I was yeah. like god yeah that's just my stuff luckily I hadn't said to her oh that was crap you were last but I wasn't far off (laughs) (laughs) she was feeling none of that shame none of that disappointment she she didn't even notice she was last as you say I think it's really exciting isn't it that we get to bring that curiosity to our reactions to our children in order to keep growing ourselves but it's just not still even after Philippa Perry's amazing book Uh it's still not the way that we are taught to view mothering and parenting is it no and it's funny you say that because I was thinking about how important it is you know as a takeaway for me one of these things that I often say to parents is let them not care about the stuff they don't care about they'll have plenty of stuff they do care about which might not even be on your radar and it's so important that we recognize that they aren't having the same experience as us they're having their own new experience and my son he's 11 he came home and said is it okay that I'm on a whatsapp group I thought, oh, no, it's not really meant for that age group. Let's have a long chat about it and let's talk about what WhatsApp's like and actually why it's really important that children have real-life conversations because this is what it can look like when it translates digitally. By the time I looked into that conversation, he said, oh, I've been kicked off the group anyway. Don't worry. For me, I was like, oh, you've been kicked off the group? You know, because this is a reenactment of my school days to be kind of exiled from the group and he was like oh to be honest it's a relief I can deal without the drama so this is fantastic because this is exactly what I preach it's like oh this is not an issue for him don't take him down a rabbit hole that belongs to me he'll have other rabbit holes that he'll need me to pace him down but this is not one of them and sometimes I find that so relaxing actually noticing my children not experiencing things that were really tough for me when I first became a mother, I didn't know about reenactment. I didn't know that it would all get triggered in me at the same age they were. I wish I had. I wish I had. But I just feel like that piece of information alone is transformational for parents. Yeah. Yes. It's transformational, isn't it? Because it can just put everything in a completely different perspective. Yeah. So we were talking about people pleasing and mothering and allowing that disappointment I'm wondering if someone is recognizing this. So they've listened to this conversation and they've got the awareness, which hopefully they have, because you have described it so beautifully. 
then it's that moving into doing something differently. And I've talked about nervous system a lot because I mm. noticed that knowing something intellectually is a totally different story than my physical, emotional, somatic reactions being yeah. able to catch up with that. So how do you move your clients if you're working with someone from that awareness? Okay, yeah, I can see I'm doing this. I can see why I'm doing it. I learned it from my mom. My feelings weren't safe. Good, good, good. How does someone actually begin to change it? Bearing in mind so, that they'll be exhausted and overwhelmed yeah. and all the stuff that mums are. Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways we could do that that I find are really kind of practical and they have a kind of physical bite-sized quality to them, which I mean, I think you can just get the results and you can see it because when you talk about your nervous system, you're so right that that is what we're working with or against at these times. And there is a part of our brain that we share with reptiles that's 300 million years old that sits right at the back there, our amygdala. And that part of our brain is amazing because it's responsible for our survival in so many ways. It's also completely evidence-based. And what that means is if you, let's take it into a totally different scenario. Let's say you go on a flight and you're scared of flying and you carry a lucky penny and you get off that flight in one piece. The part of your brain that I'm talking about will say, yeah, well done. That was the lucky penny. So there is no way in the world I'm going to let you get on a flight again without that lucky penny. If you have got through life by people pleasing and that part of your brain is saying to you, yeah, well done. The reason you're still alive, the reason you still have people in your life, the reason that you still have relationships of any kind is because you've been a nice person who's always kind, bends over backwards, goes the extra mile, never says no. That part of your brain will not let you change, not without a fight anyway, because it believes that that has been tantamount to you surviving into the present day. It literally comes down to survival. So in the same way as I'd be saying to you, bad news, I'm going to take that lucky penny off you because what we need is for you to get on a flight without it and survive so that that part of your brain gets some evidence that you still survive without that coping strategy. I'm going to have to do the same with people pleasing. It's kind of bad news until we can give you some evidence that you can say what you want or express a feeling or put a boundary in and survive. Until we can do that, you won't have the evidence you need to continue to grow and shift down that road. So what that looks like in practice is something I call rings of relationship. And it's in the book that I wrote, and it talks about drawing these concentric circles and putting the relationships in your life from the outer ring, which are kind of very light touch relationships, the person who's working at the checkout in Sainsbury's, all the way in through those rings of relationship, maybe your neighbors, your colleagues your friends, your partner, until probably right in the middle is that family of origin. Those relationships that were high risk, but high reward. So we have these sets of rings. And then I'm going to invite you to start to experiment so that that part of your brain can get some evidence. Experiment at the edges. Be in Sainsbury's or wherever you do your shopping. Stand in the checkout queue. Notice that someone else pushes in front of you and try it. Try saying, actually, you might not be aware, but I was in front of you. The worst that's going to happen is that you get a filthy look from a complete stranger. But the best case scenario is they say, I didn't see you there, or I'm sorry, and they move. Then you bring it in and you try it maybe with someone that you work with, but the relationship's not too significant. Then you try it with a friend, then you bring it closer. Then with your close friends, you start saying, do you know what? I know I've always said that I was up for doing this, but the funny thing is, 
I'm actually really tired and I'd much rather sit on the sofa and watch a film with you than go out for White Wine Wednesdays. Maybe we can start to actually update and experiment with some of those relationships. The idea being that we're getting more and more evidence on the way in, that we're still okay. Somewhere right in the middle there are going to be those family of origin relationships. So what I give at this point is a health warning. And I say, you might not choose to go all the way into the middle. That's not a destination. This is just a direction of travel. You might choose to square off some of those really early relationships as people doing the best they could with what they had. And it still might give you a whole ton of scope to update the relationships that are in your daily life now. So that's one thing I talk about, these rings of relationship. The second technique that I teach clients is about a joy list. And the reason I call it a joy list is because as people pleasers, we've often spent so much time living out other people's feelings and needs that we have genuinely lost touch with what makes us happy. So I'll say to a people pleaser in recovery, what do you want to do? And they'll draw a blank. They'll look at me and say, I don't even know anymore what I like doing. So we start a joy list and it starts really small and it says, whatever gives you pleasure, just make a notes page on your phone, put pen to paper, start a list. Let it be really small details. I love going to that cafe and sitting in that window seat and having a frothy coffee. I love having a really hot bubble bath and watching reality TV on my phone while I have my bath. Again, personal experience. I love going for a walk in nature. I love listening to a podcast. I like wearing my pajamas at five o'clock in the afternoon as soon as I get in. I like eating food from this particular takeout, flicking through a trashy magazine. Whatever it is that gives you joy, put it on the list. That list is going to be a lot easier to write when you're feeling joyful when something's happening that's giving you a sense of joy so if you notice that you've had a great afternoon and you didn't really realize it but you went for a run and it just went brilliantly and you love the music write it down and see if you can get two or three other things on that list as well because then I'm going to set you a challenge which is as you stop people pleasing you are going to lose a source of affirmation approval fulfillment and we're going to need something to backfill that Because like I was saying about your amygdala, your brain won't give up a source of positivity unless it's got something else lined up. So in those moments when you stop pleasing other people and you start to notice there's a gap, because actually, who am I even? I want a part of you to take another part of you by the hand and do something on your list. The good news is you don't have to want to. You're going to do it anyway. And you actually don't have to like it. I just want you to find out what it feels like, because there's a difference between decision and a discovery in life. People pleasers live by decision. Here are the rules. Follow them at any cost. I want you to experience discovery. What do I like? Who am I? What interests me? What works for me? What are my terms? Where would I put a boundary? That won't come through decision. That will come through discovery. There's so much in there. And there's (laughs) such powerful, powerful ideas. And funnily enough, I haven't heard about the rings thing, but that is Mm. what I intuitively started doing when I first started recovering from people pleasing. I remember it so well. Haircut finished, horrific haircut. Do you like it? And I went, no. And I thought, I am going to die. This is so uncomfortable. And I went, I'm really sorry. I I don't like it. You've not done what we talked about and I don't like it. And I remember like shaking. But as you say, I was training myself with a low risk that it was safe 
to do that. I think what is hard is then I remember seeing the sadness and the disappointment on the hairdresser's face. And like you were saying, yeah, just classic people pleaser. I could say my thing, but then the moment I saw that disappointment, I wanted to say, oh no, actually I love it. But holding that truth that they were really upset and I was really upset. And that's yeah. the difference, isn't it? I think my recovery from people pleasing is like living life on life's terms a bit more mm. instead of just trying to make everything okay all the time. Yeah. And living life on life's terms, life is like a bloody roller coaster, isn't it? That's yeah. just the truth of it. Well, that's what I've discovered. I think that's right. You know, that part of you were just describing that you're right, that it is like a roller coaster. It's uncertain. If as kids we'd been taught that uncertainty was okay, because we've been taught that it's okay in survival to be disappointed to feel worried, to feel let down, to feel angry, then we'd be able to live with the uncertainty now. That's what we're trying to do is retrain ourselves. Uncertainty, it's okay. It's scary, but it is okay. Yeah, so true. It is so true. And yet, isn't it just one of the big paradoxes of parenting that everything in us wants to not allow our children? You know, when Jesse comes to me with a worry, I still have to override, let's fix it. Let's sort it out. I still have to override that part of me that wants to just take that worry away from her. But as you say, really the gift and the richness is in, okay, let's talk about it. So she said to me the other day, someone doesn't like me. And everything in me wanted to be like, what? What What sort of crazy six-year-old child doesn't like you? And I had to say, (laughs) I took a really deep breath and I went, not everybody likes mummy. That's just part of life. And I could see her being like, what? And I was like, it's okay that she doesn't like you, Jessie. That's okay. And then I sort of did that thing that you were just saying. I described, you know, I've been working really hard on trying to like myself a bit more, actually. And she was like, whoa, to me, it feels innate to want to take all the pain away from our children. Of course it does. Of course it does. Especially if we maybe are still learning ourselves how to tolerate pain, you know, because a friend of mine once said that we're only ever as happy as our least happy child. Yes. What is that phrase? I know. But like, yeah, that's so true. And then now I look and think, and this could be a complete cop out. But what I have found is that the anti-people-pleasing parenting model that I now try to put into practice is so much easier than setting ourselves that impossible task of protecting our children from pain. Not only will we fail at that, but we will tie ourselves in knots trying. Whereas actually to be alongside our children, to hold their hand, to accompany them through being dumped or failing an exam or not getting a job, or those are the more realistic and sustainable options we have as a parent. That phrase, someone said that to me the other day and I laughed and I said, oh, was that from the codependence parenting manual? (laughs) (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? It's true that so many of us, you know, and I know my mum sort of, you know, we had that level of enmeshment. If you're not okay, I can't be okay. Yes. It's so fascinating, isn't it? To just dive Mm -hmm. into, especially all these phrases that we hear around parenting. Yeah. And I love how you've pulled a few of them out already. What are Mm -hmm. some of the other big parenting kind of phrases or myths that with this people-pleasing lens on you really want us to be able to challenge and do differently? Oh, that's also such a great question. Of course, all those phrases have just flown out of my head, but there's something about it's not a phrase, but it's like a stereotype. It's that perfect mum, you know, the idea that there's someone there who's home cooking every night and who's 
washed and ironed our clothes and they're back in our wardrobe and who's there ready to play a board game and help us with our homework. You know, that myth that there is that mother to aspire to be. And I realise now that it does those two really tricky things because one of them obviously is that that mother is not living perhaps a fully realised version of her own life, perhaps, or at least she's making sacrifices that she may be aware of to a greater or lesser extent. But also that that sets up this chain of people pleasing in the generations that follow, that that is what it is to be a mother, that that is what it looks like to be getting it right. And when I look at that now, again, that's why I call it a bit of a cop out. I kind of take comfort in the idea that I'm breaking the chains of people pleasing when I microwave the pizza that I burnt yesterday. But there is something about you know, even that pizza example is is a kind of perfect one for me because I will say, oh, I've burnt the pizza and my daughter will go, ah, you're right. And I get something from that, which is more than just, I mean, I'm not saying I burnt it on purpose. I legitimately always burn pizza. But I mean, 10 minutes, who can focus for that long? There is something about hearing my daughter say, it'd be all right. But I think, oh, well, I've ticked a different box. <laughs> something important there came through for her. Yeah. It's so maybe so it's that myth. It's like a win-win, right? It's a win-win. Yes. Like we get to be messy and embodied yeah. and authentic and get it wrong and have too much childcare, too little childcare, take on too yes. much work or too little work. We get yeah. to like play around with it and get it wrong a hundred times over whilst just showing our kids that's life and it's all good. Yeah. And go for it. Be like that. Be yeah. a mess. And you're loved anyway. And I yes. love myself anyway. And I love you yeah. anyway. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just makes you more available for relationship because there's more of you present. I love it. The premise of Motherkind really <laughs> is about that. Is this sort of, you know, revolutionizing motherhood away from this idea of, you know, the limited and the confined yeah. and the repeating and the, yeah, but you just describe it in such a powerful way. So thank mm. you. You said so many things that I've just absolutely absolutely <laughs> loved and I knew you would and I always ask the same question at the end of every interview which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world what would that one gift be and why I think it would be the gift that I wish I'd been given and that is permission to not cherish every moment which was very absent for me in the beginning and got in the way of me actually building the relationships that I wanted to build that were authentic. So that is the permission I would give. We don't have to cherish every moment. We just have to show up as the hot messes we are. It is so true. And again, isn't that one of those just ridiculous, who on earth on the planet uh, can <laughs> cherish every moment? That implies we're present for every moment, mind, body, and soul, which unless you're Eckhart yeah. Tolle, you're not going to be yes. able to do anyway. <laughs> What the hell? It's just mad, isn't it? And I challenge him to cherish the moment when he know, would he would not chaos he would, in the kitchen. He would not be cherishing. I'm definitely going to get him on at some point because yes, I think when you put his teachings, which I love through a parenting yeah. lens, it's just yeah, kind of way. <laughs> the cracks show, don't they? Exactly, exactly. Oh well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy, Pleasure. and I would encourage everyone to go and check out your book because it's incredible and of course your new podcast with your friend yes Elizabeth. yes absolutely tell, tell yes. us a bit about that you're doing series two soon aren't you series two yeah it actually lands mid-july 
So we have done a serious one so far, and it's been such a joy to do. This is Elizabeth Day, who's my best friend, and also, you know, an award-winning author and broadcaster or whatever. She and I have been having some what we call conversations for the soul. So it's called Best Friend Therapy. And it's available wherever get a podcast. But if you want to hear two women just talking about themes that affect us every day, then we'd love to hear from you. It's really, really good. I would definitely, definitely recommend it. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.